0: Agile Rabbit make events for curious minds. In partnership with the University of Exeter, we focus on ideas, global affairs and the natural and scientific world. These events are set in contrasting venues across the southwest to provide quirky experiences which welcome conversation. For more information, visit agile-rabbit.com. Here is Dr Susanna Maidment, the curator of the dinosaur, fossil crocodilomorph, and basal archosauromorph collections at the Natural History Museum. Susanna Maidment visited Exeter Phoenix to talk about the Stegosaurus.
1: Hi everybody, I'm Susie Maidment. I'm a researcher at the Natural History Museum. So uh, one of the little known things about the NHM, I think is that although it is also a museum, it's also a big research institute one of the largest natural environment research institutes in the uk actually so we have about 200 researchers um, who work or involved with the natural history museum so it's really really big institution Um, and we also hold the uk's national natural history collections and part of my job at the museum is to look after the uk's national dinosaur collection today i'm going to talk to you about what I've done for most of my career, which is study the armored dinosaurs and particularly the stegosaurs. So basically I'm gonna tell you pretty much everything I know about stegosaurs today. Just a quick hands up, quick survey, who's heard of stegosaurus? Okay, so that's pretty typical, right? Stegosaurus is a really iconic dinosaur, okay? Pretty much everybody has heard of Stegosaurus. But actually, Stegosaurs as a group are a much bigger group of dinosaurs. There's quite a lot of different types, but they're all kind of characterized by the possession of a series of plates and spines that extend from the neck right to the end of the tail. They are known from all around the world. So Stegosaurus itself comes from here in the Western US, There are two stegosaurs from the UK, actually, um, and one was the first stegosaur ever found, and it was found uh, in 1875 in Swindon, of all places, and it's called Das But As you can see, there's also stegosaurs from the Iberian Peninsula, from France, so across Europe, uh, North Africa, Tanzania, South Africa, lots of stegosaurs known from China, there's possibly some stegosaurs in Argentina. We haven't, the, the fossil record's a bit poor um, of the, that, these animals there, so we're not quite sure, but putative stegosaurs from there as well. So the only continents that we don't have stegosaurs from are Australia and, of course, Antarctica. Now, it might seem silly that I'm saying Antarctica, but actually we do have other dinosaurs from Antarctica. So we could have stegosaurs there, maybe we just haven't found them yet. Okay, so here's where Scalidosaurus comes in. This is Scalidosaurus here. So the details of this don't matter at all, but the point that I want to make here is that Stegosaurs are really closely related to this group of dinosaurs called Ankylosaurs. And Ankylosaurs are the other armoured dinosaurs. And these are four-legged herbivores like the Stegosaurs, but their their whole bodies are covered in armour, even to the extent that some of them have bony eyelids and some of them have clubs at the end of the tails which is kind of what they're famous for now these, I think these are really weird dinosaurs they've got very very short legs and very wide bodies so they kind of look like walking coffee tables and then there's a group of dinosaurs that lie just outside of, of the group that, that includes these two and these are the early armoured dinosaurs like Scalidosaurus here so this is an early armoured dinosaur um, and this one is particularly famous um, for us in the UK because this is well known from um, the Lyme Regis and Charmouth area so you might be familiar with uh, the world heritage coast there so i realize i'm committing a major public engagement faux pas by putting a graph on the screen but do bear with me um this is showing uh, how the diversity of stegosaurs changed over time so along the bottom here we've got millions of years before present so here's 60 million years ago, so the end of the Cretaceous period, the end of the, the reign of the dinosaurs was about 66 million years ago. And up here, we've got 180 million years. Okay, So this is a really, really, really long time. Um, Stegosaurus, as shown by this black line here, this is the number of different types we know. So you can see that we know most stegosaurs from this period, the end of the Jurassic period. Stegosaurus itself is known from about 150 million years ago. So T-Rex is known from 66 million years ago, so right over here. So Stegosaurus was already a fossil by the time that T. rex lived. And in fact, T. rex is closer to us in time than it was to Stegosaurus. So anyway, Stegosaurus, so they get going somewhere in the middle, early to middle Jurassic. They really peak in their diversity in the, in the late Jurassic, and then they've gone extinct by the middle of the Cretaceous period. Now, in contrast, their sister group, Ankylosaurs, they're represented by the gray line here. So they pretty low diversity while the stegosaurs are high and then they rise in diversity right the way up until the end of the Cretaceous. This dip here is probably a sampling artifact. There's lots of marine rocks at this time, so we don't find lots of dinosaur fossils. So you can probably just extrapolate that all the way up. And then of course, this big dip is when they all went extinct at the end of the Cretaceous period. So ankylosaurs, it seems, carried on increasing in diversity after the stegosaurs went extinct. And it's been suggested that this particular shape of this graph where one line goes down and one line goes up shows that ankylosaurs were actually out-competing stegosaurs in the same ecosystems. So maybe they were kind of better at at, at digesting vegetation or eating vegetation or chewing or something like that. Um, it, It allowed them to kind of exploit resources better than the stegosaurs and thus drove the stegosaurs to extinction. But actually the work that we've been doing in my group over the past five or six years has shown that we have actually quite a lot of ankylosaurs in this time period and that ankylosaurs and stegosaurs were living alongside each other in ecosystems for maybe 30 million years and so actually we're not really sure that that's a good explanation for why the stegosaurs went extinct before the end of the cretaceous. So I don't really have an answer for why this. I don't have an answer at all for why the stegosaurs went extinct. But it is important to note that, you know, when we think of the time of the dinosaurs, it's actually lots of different times over a huge amount of time. It's not like all of those dinosaurs were living together in in one ecosystem. So, as I said, Stegosaurus, it's a really, really famous fossil, right? Uh, Or a famous dinosaur. Everybody knows what Stegosaurus is. And the weird thing about that is that... Actually, stegosaurs are, or are, Stegosaurus, they're actually quite rare as fossils. We, we have hardly any really good skeletons. And actually, this is one of the best, believe it or not. This is a specimen from a museum in Denver in uh, Western, the Western US. And the problem with this fossil, these fossils, are, there's a couple like this, and they're known as the roadkill specimens. And you can probably see why, right? It looks like they've been kind of run over by a bulldozer or something. So the problem with these is that it makes it really hard for us to understand the anatomy of these animals because we can't even prise apart, you know, which bones are which. So this has meant that stegosaurs are a little bit enigmatic. We haven't known that much about their anatomy and they've been a bit controversial despite their kind of iconic status. Now that is until we acquired this specimen, or this specimen was found, I should say. This is the Natural History Museum's Stegosaurus. It's the world's most complete stegosaurus. Uh, It's nicknamed Sophie, and it was acquired by the museum in 2012. We've got virtually the whole specimen. This forelimb here is actually a copy of that forelimb, so we don't have that one. That one was lost during fossilization. On this mount, which is in one of the the main galleries in the Natural History Museum, the skull is actually a copy, but we have the real skull in the collection. And the plate, this plate here, is a reconstruction because actually, when this specimen was found, the plate was destroyed. So what happened was this guy. So this is found. Well, I'll show you where it's found. I think it's my next slide. Yeah. Okay. So this is. This is Wyoming and Sophie was found in, in these rocks here, which are a suite of rocks called the Morrison Formation. The Morrison Formation is where all your all your fam- uh, favourite dinosaurs are from. So Brontosaurus and Allosaurus and Diplodocus and all the ones you knew when you were seven. They are all from these rocks. In fact, the dinosaurs are so rich in the area that people actually go and buy a ranch or a plot of land and they quarry for dinosaurs commercially. and that is how and then prepare them and sell them on the open market. And that's actually how Sophie, uh, how Sophie was found by commercial fossil dealers. And what they were doing was they were driving this guy called Bob. He was driving his digger. He'd been digging somewhere else on the quarry. And he was driving his digger up a slope and he caught the digger bucket on the edge of the hill and it knocked out some vertebrae. And he went to have a look and he thought, now these look like stegosaurus vertebrae. And he started digging into the hill. And he found this incredibly complete and fully articulated. So all the bones were lying in, in the right position. And normally when we find fossils, we just find scrappy bits of kind of random random limb bones or a bit of vertebra or a plate or something. Not the whole thing lying like it died yesterday. So this was really, really interesting and really unique. But of course, when he hit the, the hill with the digger bucket, that destroyed one of the plates and some of the vertebrae. So they were present, but they were lost when it was found. Dinosaurs go for quite a lot of money. You might be surprised or unsurprised to hear, I don't know. But um, a T-Rex at auction was the most expensive fossil ever sold. I think it was last year, it might have been the year before, and it sold for $32 million. So fossils go for lots and lots of money. This one, I'm not allowed to tell you how much, so don't ask. But we, you know, we, it's, more than, it's more than the museum's buying power, put it that way. So th- we, had to, we were able to acquire this specimen thanks to a, a private donation. So somebody donated us the money. But not only did the donation include... The money to buy the specimen but it also allowed us to employ a postdoc who worked on the specimen uh, behind the scenes for a year so that was fantastic so it meant that we could do a whole bunch of research on the animal before it went on display and so this was how it was laid out in one of the back rooms at the Natural History Museum while Charlotte was working on it and Charlotte took 20,000 individual photos of the bones to make this 3D model, so this is a digital model of the skeleton. And digital models are really, really, really useful if we want to study specimens. They're useful for lots of reasons. Um, lots of people email me and say, can I, can I have a copy of this model so I can share it with researchers all around the world? And that means that people who are maybe don't have the funding, don't have the money to be able to come to the Natural History Museum collections and study our material, if there are other paleontologists, I can share our fossils with them. Um, we can do really some cool analyses when we have computational models, and I'll show you some of the sorts of things that we can do. Um, but here, I just wanna show you just the really basic things about Stegosaurus that we didn't know before we had Sophie. So we had no Stegosaur with a complete backbone. So we didn't know how long stegosaurus was at all we had no we didn't know we didn't know how many plates and spines were on its back but now we do and really interestingly there are only two (laughs) skulls two complete skulls of stegosaurus and both of them all the bones are fused together so they're always they're, they're adults all the bones are sort of stuck together and the mouth's fused shut and this makes them really hard to study one of them's completely squished as well and it makes them really really hard to study because we can't see the individual shapes of the bones so sophie was not fully grown when it died and the bones are separate from each other in the skull but it was all found so that's why we keep the the skull bones behind the scenes in the collection because they're all separate we don't want to stick them back together again it's the only stegosaurus in which they're not all stuck together but yeah it's, it's the only one where we could actually you know understand the shapes of the bones and and get the detail now, one of the things that we, as I said, we can do a bunch of different studies when we have digital models. And one we wanted to kind of understand a little bit about the life of Sophie, who it was, and understand more about Stegosaurus, really. So one of the first things that we did was we wanted to calculate its body mass. Now, we often see body masses in the media, right? When you, you, you read about a new sauropod, a new long-necked, long-tailed dinosaur being found, and it's the, heav- the biggest dinosaur ever, weighs 60 tonnes, you know, that kind of thing. Now, body mass is actually kind of important because it can tell us all sorts of interesting things about the biology of the animal from the size of its home range to how many offspring it might have had. But actually calculating the body mass for an animal that's extinct is not an easy thing to do. And there are a couple of different ways. And we applied a, a couple, but I'm going to tell you about this one. And this is called convex hulling. So what we do is we take our original skeleton and we make our lovely 3D model. And then we basically shrink wrap the 3D model digitally in these, in these shapes, in these objects that kind of encompass the whole of the skeleton. Now, of course, we can do this with living animals as well. And then we can say, right, once we've got a nice shrink wrapped skeleton of you know, a mammal or something, how much do I have to increase the volume of that shrink wrap? So I should say that what we can do once we've got these volumes is we can apply the material properties, so like the density of tissue. We've got the volume so we can work out the mass of each segment and then we can calculate the total body mass. But we can do this with living animals and we can say, right, how much do I need to increase that convex hull to kind of account for the average fleshiness of an animal? So this has been done, particularly in mammals, although people are now doing it in reptiles as well. And it turns out there's 21%. So if you take this convec- these convex hulls and you increase it by 21%, then you get kind of the average fleshiness. And so we, we did this. Um, here's Sophie with the 21% extra. And we discovered that it would have weighed about 1.5 tonnes. So that's about the same as a white rhino. Now, the great thing though about using computational models is that you can do kind of sensitivity analyses. So you can say things like, what if dinosaurs were just super, super fleshy, like way more fleshy than living animals. So we can say, well, let's just, let's just increase those convex hulls by 50% just to see what happens. And it turns out that Sophie would be 1.9 tonnes. So you can kind of get an idea on like what your error bars are on your body masses. So we found out that Sophie was about the same size as a white rhino, about the same mass as a white rhino. One of the other things that we can do with this method is calculate the centre of mass. So the centre of mass is like the pivot point, it's like the seesaw, it's like that point in the middle of the seesaw. And this is interesting for Stegosaurus because back in the 70s and the early 80s, somebody proposed that Stegosaurus could do this. Um, and this is called a tripodal stance. And the idea was that stegosaurs could rear up onto their hind limbs, use their tail as a prop, and then browse up much higher into the trees. And stegosaurs have very, very short forelimbs because they're evolved from bipedal ancestors. So they, they went down secondarily onto forelegs. So this you know, it might have allowed them to, to reach higher up because they, they were quite you know, low down at the front. So we wanted to see whether this was feasible for Stegosaurus and what we found was this black cross is is the center of mass. Now normally with a four-legged animal, when with f- other four-legged dinosaurs that we've done this to, you get a center of mass around about here, just in front of the toes or level with the toes. But for Stegosaurus, you can see it's quite far back. It's actually the furthest back of any of these animals we've done. So it doesn't mean that it definitely did this, but I think it offers some support to the idea that it could have reared up onto its forelegs legs um, to browse higher into the trees like this. Now another thing that we were interested in is what was Stegosaurus eating? So Stegosaurus is kind of unusual for the group of dinosaurs that it belongs to, the bird hip dinosaurs. Now all of these dinosaurs, they're things like Triceratops and Iguanodon. They are quite amazing eaters we call them mega herbivores and this is because they evolved grinding like so we we grind food in our mouth we have molars and we grind up our food now most reptiles don't do that they just gulp food down and swallow it down but dinosaurs evolved the ability to grind their food they, they don't have molars like we do they, they had many 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 rows of teeth but stegosaurs unusually didn't have this they, they didn't there's no real evidence that they were processing food in their mouths at all it's a bit weird. But also their te- the-, the crowns of their teeth are tiny. So one of these little teeth is about half a centimeter in size. And this is for an animal with a skull that's you know, that big. It's actually pretty small. So I'd always thought when I was just studying these and looking at them, well, maybe they're just kind of slurping down pondweed or something, eating something very, very soft. So we decided to test this. And we can do this using um, this method, which is called uh, finite element analysis. So you can take a lovely 3D model of your skull. So what we were able to do with this beautiful disarticulated skull we have, we CT scanned it in the Natural History Museum scanner and then reconstructed the skull digitally to produce this. And then what you can do is you divide the skull into all these little cubes, so again, digitally, and you can assign these cubes the material properties of the stuff you're interested in. So in this case, Bone, but also you can assign it, you know, different properties for the sutures between the bones and things like that. And this is a technique that they use in engineering to see whether, for example, bridges are strong enough for lorries to drive over them. Uh, this is this is a, a, really an engineering technique, not a, not a biological technique. So when you've got your finite element model, you can then apply stress to the model. And you can see how the skull deforms. And you can see at what point it would have broken. So this is a map of how the stress is being dissipated through the skull. Um, and uh, the hot colours here are higher stresses and the, the cooler colours are lower stresses. Um, and what my colleagues who carried out this research discovered was that Stegosaurus could a- actually had a surprisingly high bite force. And it could actually probably munch through twigs with about the same bite force as a sheep. Which really surprised me because of these teeny tiny teeth. But what we, what we think is true for most uh, of these sorts of dinosaurs and probably Stegosaurus as well, is that they had a kind of horny beak, a little bit like a turtle. And so maybe that bite force is being transmitted through the beak and they aren't really using their teeth in quite the same way. Still a bit enigmatic though. So something else that um, I particularly have been very interested in throughout my research is locomotion, how things move and walk and again you know i I was talking about how do we tell the body mass of an extinct animal well how do we tell how things walked how do we tell soft tissue characteristics that don't fossilize and we can do this by using uh, the, the most close living relatives to dinosaurs and those those are crocodiles and birds and what we can do is we can reconstruct things like muscles based on if a crocodile has a a muscle and a bird also has that muscle we can assume that a dinosaur had that muscle as well because they had a common ancestor crocodiles and birds had a common ancestor and that was also the common ancestor of the dinosaurs as well so I did a bunch of dissections these this is a croc's uh, that were done at the Royal Vet College actually so I got to join their dissections there. I'm a geologist by training so um, dissecting things is really a little bit out of my comfort zone so th- I just bought some chickens from Tesco's because there's no blood and guts and just dissected some chickens didn't take it home to eat afterwards and dissected as uh, so I d- did this and then figured out where all I could sort of constrain where all of the muscles are going to be And uh, once I had that information, I could make some kind of qualitative ideas about what this meant about locomotion and stance in these dinosaurs. Um, So this is the hip of a stegosaur. This is the front end and that's the back end. And these are some muscles I I plotted on. But the point really here is that this is what I came up with in terms of stance. Now I'm not a very good artist. So I didn't draw, I just used these stick and ball models. But what the point that uh, I want kind of take to take home is that the forelimbs were probably held with the elbows out a little bit in a kind of almost like a press up position. So they weren't columnar like with mammals, they were kind of a little bit out to the sides. The hind limbs, however, were quite, were quite straight. So from the side view, you'd have quite a straight hind limb and a slightly bent elbow. And I think, You know, these dinosaurs when they were moving, they look really weird to us because we're so used to seeing mammals move. But these are animals that are secondarily quadrupedal, so they've gone down to four legs secondarily. And I think they they would have been really constrained in terms of how fast they could move and their stride length by this by this forelimb, because it couldn't, they couldn't move it forwards. I literally can't do this without miming. It's impossible to talk about dinosaur locomotion without doing it. But yeah, so they couldn't move their arm, they couldn't stretch out. Um, they could only sort of shuffle forwards and this is supported by trackways so we do have some trackway data from animals that we think are stegosaurus or or closely related and this this idea kind of is supported by those tracks but actually this is all very qualitative and very kind of you know not very technical and we can do a bit better than this so what we can do is we can take 3D models again and this is a hip of uh, actually a a small two-legged animal I haven't got a video of the one of the four-legged animal I'm going to see if my video works hopefully and we can plot all the muscles on. So these these red lines are all the muscles that I reconstructed. And then we can basically make the leg swing in this piece of software, and we can measure the torque of the muscle. So how much the muscle is able to pull the leg backwards and forwards and which way it's able to pull it. Now, how good an animal is at moving, how fast it moves, its locomotor properties and the performance are based on much more than simply you know, how, how good its muscles are at pulling the legs in, in one direction. It's about things like the cross-sectional area of the muscle. How big is the muscle? How long are the muscle fibers? And we don't know that for dinosaurs, or at least we don't know it right now. So we're a little bit limited in what we can say from this, but um, it at least gives us some idea when we, we can look at it relative to other dinosaurs and say, how was Stegosaurus, kind of, you know, w- were its muscles weaker or stronger in terms of pulling the leg forward and backwards? And Stegosaurus um, actually has really, really strong muscles to pull its leg backwards. Now, in Stegosaurus, those muscles attach, all, well, in the dinosaurs and in Crocs, the muscles attach all the way down the back of the tail. And actually, the armored dinosaurs, they have like, enormously strong muscles to pull that leg backwards. And so one of the ideas that we thought th- that might explain this is that maybe those muscles weren't just used for walking, but they might also have used, been used for swinging the tail. And we know that things like ankylosaurs, those ones with the clubs at the end of the tail, and also stegosaurs have these spikes at the end of the tail that maybe they're using their tails as weapons. So maybe they need extra strong muscles that run down the tail to help them swing it from side to side. Now, what we'd really like to do with stegosaurus, and we're still working on this, I have a PhD student working on this right now, is to build one of these. So this is an... (laughs) I don't know why its arms are doing this. Like Nobody knows. Well, maybe somebody knows, but I don't know. This is an evolutionary robotic model that's been put through, a, yeah, an evolutionary learning algorithm, and basically been told to, to walk. So what you do with something like this, you'll rec- hopefully you'll recognise the hip with all those muscles that I had plotted on. This is the same as what I did, except they've gone like a lot further than me, and they've said, right, we're going to give the limb bones like the physical properties of bone, and say if you exceed this force value, then you're going to break because you know bone breaks. They tell the model, you know, it has, you have to obey gravity. That's a thing that you have to obey. Um, and then, you know, they, they say, okay, well, look, walk, go ahead and walk, model. And, and the model, first of all, it tries to hop or something and it boings off into space and circles around. And, but, it, and then they run it again and they run it again and they run it again. And they run it millions and millions and millions of times. And eventually, basically the model learns to walk um, within the physical constraints that it's been given. And so obviously this is T-Rex and they did it on T-Rex first because, you know, clearly T-Rex is everybody's favorite dinosaur. But what this model particularly shows about T-Rex is that you'll notice that it's walking. Can you see that it's not running? So a running gait is when both feet are off the ground. There's a, there's a phase when both feet are off the ground at the same time. And this model it's not. It's, it's walking. <coughs> T-Rex actually physically couldn't run. If it had run, its legs would have broken. It, the, the, the force was too great, according to this. And however it was still able to walk at about 12 miles an hour which is faster than we can run so my top tip if you are ever being chased by a t-rex is still make sure you're not the slowest person in the room (laughs) anyway hopefully one day i'll be able to come back and show you my stegosaurus model of it kind of shuffling along really slowly uh like this okay so probably the question that i'm asked the most when i tell people that i work on stegosaurs is well what was the function of their plates and spines so it's quite a difficult question to answer, actually. Um, there's been a number of different ideas. One is thermoregulation. So this is the idea that these dinosaurs effectively have a kind of cold-blooded metabolism. They're not able to control their body temperature like we are. Um, and they're very, very large. And just eating and moving around would have generated a huge amount of metabolic heat. And rather than, you know, like how lizards sort of shuffle out into the sun and wait to warm up before they can move around. Well, these guys would have had the opposite problem. They would have had this problem losing heat. And so it's been suggested that maybe these big plates on their backs were actually used as heat radiators and that they could pump blood into these plates and it would, you know, the surface area would help them cool down. Now, it's quite a good idea, I think. Um, There's lots of blood supply to the plates. The plates were probably covered in a horny kind of sheath Um, And we can see the blood supply um, with the pits and channels running through the plates. But the problem with this is that Stegosaurus is really the only Stegosaur that has these very big, broad plates. And also they're offset from one another. The other Stegosaurs have paired plates and they're much smaller. So while I think, you know, it's certainly extremely likely that the plates acted as heat radiators, I don't think that's the reason they evolved Another example, of course, another idea, of course, is that they were actually armor. You know, they were, they were being used as armor. We call them armor. But I think you probably agree that they're not ideally situated for armor. Um, obviously the whole flanks of the animal here are exposed. And this is Allosaurus that lived alongside Stegosaurus in the Morrison Formation and, you know, Honestly, I think if I were, you know, biting through one of these plates for an Allosaurus would be like us eating a pack of Doritos. I don't think it's going to be massively difficult. They're not very thick. You know, they're quite thin plates. So I'm not totally convinced by the idea that they're actively armour plates. But what they could be is some sort of display item. So they could be kind of deterring predators by making the animal look bigger or more scary than it actually was and there's nothing you know we can't rule out the idea that maybe it could flush its plates red like this one here is doing so maybe it was a display thing I think there's, there's some kind of sort of circumstantial support for the idea that uh, maybe these were some sort of display items so these are plates from a whole bunch of different stegosaurs from all around the world Um, and you can see that they're all quite different shapes in the different different types of stegosaur this one hasn't got a scale bar but that's about a meter in size that plate that one's from stegosaurus whereas that these are these are much smaller so that's a what 15 10 centimeter scale bar there so these are much much smaller plates but you can see how they're all quite different shapes and i think We know that lots of stegosaurs were living alongside each other in the same ecosystems, so maybe they were using their plates to signal to each other in some way, or maybe they were using them to deter predators. Now, the problem with all of these ideas is they're virtually impossible to test, and also they're probably not mutually exclusive. They could have been using them for more than one thing. We know that, say, scoots, which are the little kind of dermal bone embedded in the backs of crocodiles, are used for calcium reservoir when they're making eggshells. They use those uh, for thermoregulation. So they do use them to to help them lose heat. Um, And they also use them as armor. So it's likely that these these, uh, plates did more than one thing for the animals. Um, I did mention tails though and of course we do have evidence that the tails could be swung from side to side. People have done biomechanics and shown that the tail was bendy and that when you look at how much force the tail spike of a stegosaurus could impact once it had been swung round like that, it actually is enough force to impact bone. So the tail spikes probably you know, were weapons really. Okay that's all I have for you so thank you very much for listening. I'm really happy to answer any questions you have. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to Dr Susanna Maidman from the Natural History Museum. This was an Agile Rabbit event, recorded at Exeter Phoenix.